Hello again. Just, uh, are we okay, Peter? Brilliant. So we've been looking at this series about worth it in the lead up to our gift day um, because it's important to, to think about God and his faithfulness as we go towards this. Um, but it's always a slightly tricky topic to talk about money and stuff, isn't it? Um, it's kind of tricky because people don't like to talk about it, do they? They don't like to talk about money. You know, your friend gets a new job and you don't ask how much you're going to earn, even though that's the question you really want to ask because we don't talk about money, okay? And partly in the church, we don't like talking about money because it's been handled so badly in the past. You know, I'm sure lots of images come to your mind about money and, uh, and what people trying to get money off you. And, and what's also quite difficult is that here in Skipton Baptist Church, you pay our salaries. So that makes it even more complicated whenever you're standing here talking about money and generosity. So in the light of that nervousness, um, a joke. There were three, uh, three ministers. There was a Methodist minister, there was a Presbyterian minister, and there was a Baptist minister. And they were talking about how they give their offering. And so the Methodist minister said, well, actually, how we do it is we, uh, each person deducts 10% from their starting salary, pre or post-tax, it's up to them, and then they put it into an offering envelope, and then they put it on a plate, and there it goes into the church coffers. Great. So they turn to the Presbyterian and say, Presbyterian minister, what do you do? And the Presbyterian minister says, well, what we do is we, we take that 10%, but we don't stop there. We follow the letter of the law, so we, we tithe, but we just don't tithe. We add another 10% on top of that. And we want to be really generous, so we keep on giving, and we keep on giving. And if there's anything left at the end, we'll feel guilty about it. <laughs> so they turn to the Baptist, and they say, Baptist, what are you doing? He says, well, what we do is we get four people to come to the front of the church with a large blanket, one person on each corner of the blanket, and they stretch it out. And then one by one, everyone comes up and pours all they have, money, cash, jewelry, everything into this blanket. And then, after a holy count of three, we throw it up in the air. And whatever God wants, he keeps. (laughs) We don't like talking about money. I do like that joke. I've been waiting to use it for years. I love it. Anyway. We don't like talking about money, but my goodness, Jesus talked a lot about money because he knew that it was really significant in all our lives. Okay, it is just significant and it just is. When we talk about money, we have the danger of it leading to talking about jealousy and pride or judgment. And Paul is addressing the whole area of money and giving here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And you may have it in front of you just because we haven't read both, the whole of both chapters and we're referring to some of it. But it's important to know the context of what's going on at the time. Paul has been on his missionary journeys. But the missionary journey isn't the only purpose. It's also to do a fundraiser, an ecclesiastical whip-round, you might like to call it, because there's a serious problem with the church in Jerusalem. There's been famine around that area. So crops are failing, the economy is in trouble, people are genuinely poor. But then also the Christian community has got isolated more recently because it's been uh, noticed that they are not actually part of Judaism. And so they're starting to get socially excluded as well. And so these people who maybe once had good jobs are finding themselves squeezed out and not being able to make any money. 
And this is while you have widows and orphans and the sick. And so Jerusalem, the source of the gospel, so to speak, which is spread around, is in serious financial difficulties. And so Paul is on his tour. And we have to look at Paul, and he's a very serious theologian wrestling with big issues, grace and salvation. I'm sensing a slightly different aspect of Paul's character in these passages. I'm thinking Paul more like Del Boy. <laughs> because he uses loads of different tricks, tactics, and, and, and methods to try and get the Corinthian church to cough up. Now remember, Corinth was a really well-to-do church, okay? Really well-to-do place. And he's a bit of a salesman. And these are some of the tactics that he uses. He uses guilt. He says, well, the Macedonian church, they've coughed up an awful lot, even though they can't afford it. He compliments them. You excel in so many things. So excel at giving. Then he says, remember, just a little reminder, you promised that you'd give. Hey, do you remember that last year? You said you'd give something. And then he gets emotional. He gets emotional to him. And he, and he says, you know, I know that you really want to give. And that you want to serve. So he gets emotional. He quotes the example of Jesus, the person who gave and kept on giving. And then he says, the heavies are coming. If you read on further in chapter 8, he says, Titus and two brothers are coming. And, and to paraphrase, to finish the job he started. You can just imagine Titus and their brothers knocking on the door. Hello. Time to cough up. He's sending. Yeah, that was my impression of a Cockney accent. I really don't know where that came from. Um, but anyway, he said, I'm sending the heavies round, but with a smile. He's sending the collectors round. So he's using every trick in the book to try and get these people to cough up. Now, you might think, cynical, this is Paul just twisting their arm, using every manipulative tactic there is going. How awful. Well, actually, we need convincing to part with our money, don't we? We need convincing and how we know that is because we go searching for the best price for things, okay? Or, charitably, we have to watch a three-hour telethon with emotional videos from children in need and comic relief to make us engage and feel guilty or empathy in order to give. And they put on some entertainments for us because we need convincing to give away our money. And Paul knew that about Corinth. So let's not be too cynical about the fact he needed to twist their arms. I think we often need our arms twisting as well. So he moves on. They need convincing. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, he's not appealing, he's not telling them about the need in Jerusalem. They already know that. He's now appealing to this concept of generosity. And these chapters are reminders about an encouragement to be generous. And he says, let's look at the benefits of being generous. Because we are, by nature, selfish. So we want to know, what do we get out of it? What are the benefits of me parting with my money, my time, my gifts, my talents, whatever? What are the benefits? So we're going to look at, briefly, the blessings of a generous faith. The blessings of a generous faith. And there's four particular ways we're going to look at. First of all, generosity blesses the receiver, doesn't it? No? Have you ever received anything? Were you happy about it? Generosity blesses the receiver. 
you have a need, you have a desire, and you desperately want it fulfilling, someone comes along and says, here, no strings attached. Here is a gift. Here is the money. Have it. And the receiver goes, thank you. The receiver is blessed by it. Of course, if you receive something, you are blessed. But sometimes it's hard to receive gifts, though, isn't it? Because you kind of feel indebted. You're not so great at receiving. But actually, it blesses the recipient. Remember, first century, around this um, early church, there's no social security. There's no welfare state to catch you if you fall. There's a reliance on your gifts and abilities and talents, your ability to make money and provide for your family. Or if you're ill or sick, you rely on them. You rely on your local community. If there's famine and nothing is around, what do you do? There's no help. And the church was well known for looking after their own. And because Paul writes to 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians to the church, reminding them if one part of the body is suffering, every part is suffering. So if Jerusalem is at a hard time, Corinth, you may be rolling in it, but you are suffering too. The body of Christ is suffering. There's a responsibility. Even more than the generosity of a gift and the size of a gift or the quality of it is this. is what generosity says to the recipient. It says you are not forgotten. It says you are worth this gift of my money, my time, my attention. It's very easy to go past someone who's begging on the street and either ignore them or give them a couple of pounds and walk away and you feel satisfied. Or you buy them a cup of coffee, you sit down, you have a conversation and you remind them that they're a human being. Selling them, you're not forgotten. You are worth it. That's what generosity looks like. It's not about the size of the gift necessarily. And generosity is rife through the Old Testament. Remember, provision was made for the poor. And remember, if there's poor in your society, it's because somewhere down the line, someone has got more than they need. That's how economies work. Generosity is rife through the Old Testament. It was known for the early church. Needs were met when the church gave. And it's the same today. Whenever you, we handled around the plate, the offering plate, and people put money in, and you have uh, direct debits and standing orders that pay for things, those things, whenever you give, this is what happens. Kids get messy. The hungry get fed. Debtors get counseled and seekers are welcomed. The hurt get healed. The lost get found. The truth gets told and God gets worshipped. That's what happens when you put your offering into the plate or through the direct debit or whatever. And we are often part of the answer to our own prayers. God calls us to be. Because when the church gives, the recipients are blessed. Not just because they've got a few quid in their pocket, but because they're valued, they're counseled, they find the truth. Now I love the, the stories, faith stories of people. Um, well, I both love and loathe them. The stories of people who live by faith. The stories of whenever they've gone and lived in another country, another culture, or a housing estate or something, and given up lots of stuff. And they get a final bill, no way of paying it, and then another envelope drops on the, on the carpet. And they open it, and it's the exact amount they need to pay that bill. You've read the stories, I'm sure, and gone, wow, that's amazing. Somehow, I don't think there was an angel at a cash point cashing up, sticking it in a hallowed envelope and posting it through a letterbox. At some point, someone was moved by the Spirit of God to write a check, to take out some cash, to put it in an envelope and put it through a door and say, God loves you with this. The church is moved. Generosity means that needs are met and recipients are blessed. But let's not stop there because 
Generosity blesses the giver. Now, this is the bit you're queued into now, isn't it? Because this is, what can I get out of it? If I put this in, what am I going to get? Paul quotes Jesus, uh, a phrase that actually isn't in the Gospels. It's one that must have been handed down. That Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's often quoted. But the question is, why does God need my 20p, my 20 pounds, my 20,000 pounds? Why does God need it if he's the owner of the bank of heaven? Because actually it's good for us. Generosity is actually good for us. It makes us feel good. I recall the first time, um, a number of years ago, when the food bank was getting up and running, and I was, normally the food parcels are given to agencies and they go out to people in need. But I remember this one time I, I was giving a parcel to someone who was hungry, who had no food in the cupboard, and passing this bag, even though I hadn't bought the food and I hadn't collected it and put it in the bag, I handed the bag over and the feeling of doing something so generous was quite phenomenal. Generosity makes us feel good. Perhaps you've seen a TV series called Friends. Well, there's a character called Phoebe in Friends. Have you, have you seen? And she's a bit ditzy. And one time, um, I think she, she won some money and she felt guilty about it. And she wanted to explore what, how to do a selfless deed. So the whole episode is about her trying to do these selfless deeds. So at one point she gives um, someone uh, 20 pounds for a, a lamp and it ends up being worth 40 pounds. So she goes, well, I can't do a selfless deed. And eventually she, she just does something complete. She gives it away completely with no strings attached. And she says, I've done a selfless deed. And one of the other characters says, how do you feel about it? And she goes, I feel great. And she goes, no, now I've got something from it. Because giving generously makes you feel good. Why? Because of Durham Cathedral. Now, um, this is Durham Cathedral made from Lego. And if you've been to Durham Cathedral recently, this is one of their fundraising ideas. Literally, buy a brick. Only it's not a brick, it's a Lego brick. And Helen and I went to visit there. We studied at Durham. We went to visit. And uh, we bought a brick. And if you, if you don't believe me, if you zoom in, <laughs> somewhere around there is my brick. And there'd be a hole if it wasn't for me. And so we can stand back and go, look at this massive edifice of, of Durham Cathedral built in Lego. And I have played a part in that. I've played a part in that. I've invested something of me. Okay, it was a pound. It was a plastic brick. But when we invest something of ourselves, we tend to get something back, but it may not be a financial reward. There's a blessing of being invested in God's work. We are invited to be partners with God, remember, to see the fruits of it. Now, one of the things we want to get across to, to ourselves to you as well, is that we really hope that in two, five, ten years' time, you're not sitting in a pew or a seat somewhere hearing these brilliant stories of lives being transformed in this place and in the house, that lives get renewed, that people learn to love Jesus and people get debt-free and they get non-isolated. Don't be sitting in two, five, ten years' time going, I really wish I'd put something into that. I suppose I want to be told 
And maybe we all need to hear, don't miss out on this. Don't miss out on knowing that you have played a part in the moving of the kingdom of God. Because it is a blessing. But more than that, needs are met by God. 2 Corinthians 8, 13-14 and 9 it amongst other places. This is a common Christian experience, isn't it? We read about it in books. Maybe we've even experienced it personally, that the more we've stepped out in faith, maybe financially, and God has provided for our needs. Bernard has told a story about um, a, a family when we first bought the, the house who decided to give money they hadn't got at that particular time. They, were, they believed that God was asking them to, to, provide, to give this money sacrificially. And so they gave it. And not long after, the money came back in again. This is not that it's a guarantee, quid pro quo. It's not a contract you enter into. But God says, I will look after you. I will look after your needs. I know another person who told us a story about how their parents would sometimes, if there was a play at the church, would decide they wouldn't have a family holiday that year and that money would go towards, uh, towards whatever project they were doing. And he follows it up by saying, and we never missed a family holiday. God provides. God provides our needs. I remember whenever I changed from education, being a teacher, um, to join this team, there was um, some people who were worried about the fact that it would be a drop in salary. And I had one person in particular who was a little bit anxious about this and in one particular moment of rage said quite firmly, well, Jesus doesn't pay the bills. I answered, Actually, he does because he provides for us. God has provided for us as a church when we've stepped out and employed more and more people to do more and more in this church. God has provided for our needs because Jesus, ironically, pays the bills, contrary to what my friend thought. But there is a warning. There is an absolute warning here because we cannot take this as a contract, right? God, I give, so I'm expecting you to cough up next. The warning is about extremes. And the extremes are one extreme is pious poverty, and the other extreme is perpetual prosperity. One side is that we have to give absolutely everything away, like that Presbyterian thing, and if you have anything, you should feel guilty about it. That Christians shouldn't have anything. That's an extreme. Or the other extreme is, Extreme, which is new. You believe enough, if you have enough faith, you plant the faith seed and you will be prosperous. Amen. Hallelujah. No, these are extremes. These are not what the gospel says. It says God will meet your needs, the needs which he dictates for us. And it's true that God does bless us. But let me be honest. These are at best unnecessary extrapolations of the truth and at worst, downright perversions of the gospel. Okay? Say it outright like that. Because God promises to meet our needs. And if you're given more, you give more. Because that's why he says, and those who be made rich. Rich why? So you can have a private jet. And he says you will be made rich in order that you can give more. So let's not get caught up in this quid pro quo. If I show enough faith, God will like me and give me lots. That is pagan religious worship. That's not relational worship. And so we move on to, there's something Wesley said, earn all you can, give all you can, save all you can. There's nothing wrong with acquiring money. 
with the right attitude and holding it lightly. Because we need to be released from something. This is another one of the needs that generosity meets in us. We're released from something. It says money makes the world go round. Scientifically inaccurate, but metaphorically correct. Money, money, money. It's a rich man's world. This underpins Western consumer culture. And generosity goes against all that. It goes against the acquisitional attitude of the world seen in the workplace, the marketplace, adverts, consumer and debt crises. I love the fact that in, whenever CAP do um, debt counselling, um, produce a budget for someone, part of that is giving. Now that seemed a bit counterproductive, but actually the attitude of giving and being generous frees you from actually the worship of the god mammon. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. That's a rubbish translation. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon was a Carthaginian god who was about prosperity and, and, and affluence. And I think is probably one of the driving gods behind the scenes of today's culture. The character of this pagan god, mammon, seems to offer security, freedom, power, influence, prestige, comfort, but it also demands devotion, attention, and sacrifice. Your health, your busyness, your friendships, your relationships, all to satisfy this God, mammon, which can never be satisfied. You ask some of the richest people in the world how much money they have, how much money do they want? It's nearly always just a little bit more than what they've got. Someone once said, there's one thing everybody in this world wants. What's that? A bigger house. <laughs> I don't know how true that is. But mammon can never be satisfied. And generosity frees us from that grip. Generosity frees us from that grip. If you ever wonder whether money and acquisition is an influence or is an issue, ask yourself, have you ever worried about money? And have you ever aspired to have more? Because worry and wishing are the driving forces of materialism and culture. And a generous faith is an outward, practical, and downright offensive response to what is essentially a spiritual struggle for what we value and what we place our trust in. Being generous is a practical way of saying this. Jesus is Lord. Mammon ain't. That's a big thing. How are we blessed? But actually, beyond that, it doesn't just bless the recipient or the giver. It also blesses <laughs> others who are not actually involved. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1-7 and 9-2, the Corinthian church has pledged, or Paul quotes, that they pledged to give this money. And the Macedonian church that was poor heard that Corinth had done that, and they said, oh, we want to get on this as well. And so Paul is now going back and saying, and now I'm using them as an example to inspire you, because generosity inspires. And it leads to something called a virtuous circle, as opposed to a vicious one. Maybe we've seen it in things like pay it forward. You buy a coffee for someone who's behind you in the queue. They kind of go, oh, maybe I feel like I should buy some." And there's a virtuous circle that happens. Generous faith inspires. And all those stories of how, how you know, people have lived by faith, it's not about how brilliant they are or their faith. It tells you about how faithful a God we have. Others watch and they see. The early church it's recorded in first century documents, are, were renowned for looking after their own, the widows, the orphans, the sick, the lost. They shouldn't have been looked after because there was no social services, no welfare state, but the church looked after them. And more than that, they looked after other people who weren't part of the church, and they got renowned for it. 
And they got um, praised for it by people who weren't Christians. They look after one another. It was a surprising feature of the church. It impressed and it witnessed. And we've seen that even here. We've seen it whenever we have talked to new people who come to the church, to agencies around the town, to funders, especially with regards to the house. They've seen, they've asked, where does your money come from? And we've explained, it doesn't come from some magic Baptist pot somewhere. It's the people gathered here out of their own pockets have given. And it has inspired wows and gasps of awe. And actually, confusion. Why? How? Why? Why do people go off as Lisa went to do this time, or no, but last year, not last time, last year, 18 months ago, to mercy ships? Where people go and they just generously give their skills and their abilities. And people go, why do you do that? And then we've got things like CAP, we've got Lunch Club, we've got Food Bank, and we've got a house that we're saying to Skipton and his surroundings, we, Jesus' body, want to give some of God's love to you. It doesn't make sense, but my goodness, it inspires people who watch. So it blesses the recipient, it blesses the giver, it blesses others, and ultimately, it blesses God. 2 Corinthians 9 and 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. One of the understatement translations of this century. You've probably heard before, but the word cheerful should read hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Not because they're a bit barmy, but because they have a heart and desire to give. So that when they give, they've got a massive smile on their face. Why do they give? They give because God is generous. At the heart of God is give, give, give. Fundamentally, why do we want to be generous? Because God is generous. It's in his nature to be. The Old Testament laws were reminders about God's generosity and therefore our responsibility to be like him and pass on to others. Generosity goes beyond tit for tat, beyond what's deserving and what isn't. It goes beyond merit or non-merit. It's just generous. Another word that we're familiar with, it's called grace. Because God loved the world so much that he gave. God loved. God gave. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? So if we give, where should it be rooted? It should be rooted in love. Rooted in love and the example of Jesus. That's why Paul quotes Jesus, not as an arm twister, but to remind us that Jesus, the representation of God here on earth, God with us, is the full and perfect example of generous, gracious giving. It flows from a heart of love. He even says, it is the measure, the barometer of your love. Whether it's in money, whether it's in time, whether it's forgiveness or your abilities, generosity should flow from a place of love, from hearts worn by God's love. In 1 Corinthians 13, in fact, Paul says, you can give all that you have, but if you haven't got love, there's no point. There's a couple of key things with this to draw out. And this leads to the whole thing about the gift day. And please, if you haven't got one of the gift day leaflets, which has got a response form, there's some here at the front. There's a great leaflet. Thank you to the team that put it together. 
But the key thing that is throughout the entirety of these chapters, in 8, 2 to 5, in 8, 8, 10, 12, uh, and 5, verse 7, 5 to 7, throughout these verses and throughout these two chapters, what is incredibly key is this. It's not about have to. It's about want to. It's about moving of your heart. It's almost to the point, and I'm sure any, our treasurer and the deacons and Lisa will be stabbing me in the eyes if I say this, but I think it's true. I think God says, if you feel you have to, you should do, you're forced to, I don't want it. Maybe. <laughs> I want you to want to, otherwise you're not going to get out of it. What does he say? Not want to. A generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. You know the feeling if you know that someone's given you something, they really don't want to give it to you. It's tainted, isn't it? Normally it's your children and handing over a packet of sweets and they go, all right then. As opposed to someone saying, please, here, have. The experience is completely different for giver and receiver and for those who watch. And it's a different experience for God too. So a generous gift Each of you should decide in your heart what to give. Not reluctantly, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What's really key about this Macedonian church, which had nothing, they were poor. And what did they do? What was the first thing they did? They didn't gather together and go, right guys, cough up, get your change out, let's see how much we've got. What does Paul say he was surprised they did? He said, first of all, they gave themselves to God and then to us. We are not asking you for anything. As a church leadership, as ministers, as diaconate, as leaders of a project, we're not asking you for a bean. Because I don't want you to give us anything. What we want is for you to ask this question. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do in regards to this? And for some people, that will genuinely be, actually, you've given enough at the moment. Another time, you'll be able to give. For others, it'll be surprisingly less than maybe what they expected. For others, it'll be surprisingly more. But we say, God, what do you want me to give? What would be good for me to give to this? And it may be your money. It may be saying, actually, I'm going to get on board with this project. I'm going to actually join that group or that committee. I'm going to be part of the team that runs whatever cafe happens. I'm going to get on board with that more and more. I'm going to help out at the the tester cafe that's happening at the moment on on a Thursday. I'm going to be involved in what the church is doing now. But we're asking this question. Lord, what do you want me to do? Not what does the church want me to do. Not what should I do. What do I have to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? And may we answer that with a willing heart. And we'll see the blessings of generosity. Why? Because of this. And we're going to sing this later on, I hope, still. We knew this song was prophetic for us when we first brought it to the church. A song by Andy Flanagan called Bring Heaven to Earth, Lord. But the verse says, we are blessed to bless a world in pieces. We are blessed to be a blessing. So let's ask God that question. What do you want me to do? And may we have willing hearts to obey. Amen.